Good morning. I'm glad that Heather prayed that my thoughts and words would be clear to you all because they're often not very clear to me, so hopefully. Um, I was going to start off with a, a uh, story of a dream I had last evening, but <laughs> apparently if I do that, then we'll be developing some sort of pattern and visitors will be like, well, they're interpreting dreams and teaching based off of them and all that stuff. So I had a dream that because the last thing I did before I went to bed was print off my notes. I had a dream that I printed off my notes for today's sermon, and it was like a 600-page book. <laughs> it's like, all right, we're not, we're not going to get through that. So, um, so um, in the interest of time, uh, in the interest of that dream, we'll just jump right in. So uh, today we are, oops, nope, I already had that. Um, today we're continuing, as Wendell mentioned, our apologetic series with um, I think the most relatable and effective argument for the existence of God, the moral argument. And um, many of you will be familiar with this, some of you won't be, and maybe some of you will be familiar with this family of arguments called axiological arguments, but um, maybe not with William Lane Craig's particular formulation. Um, before we do that, we might want to just take a quick step back and think about what we're doing um, with this series. I've had a few conversations with folks over the past um, couple months that uh, led me to believe we, we might want to take just a moment to, to uh, kind of debrief on what we're, what we're doing here in Reset. So, um, so we're studying apologetics now. We, we do this, as you notice, if you've been at our church for a long time, we do this every, every few years, um, more frequently than that, actually, um, for a few reasons and for a few sets of people. Um, so... The first is for uh, unbelievers. Of course, this goes without saying, and it's the most obvious group uh, that we would rehearse, develop arguments, um, that we would study and disseminate these arguments um, towards the most critical component of society around us, and that's usually unbelievers who want to poke holes in the arguments that we have or in our system of beliefs. So we fill gaps through apologetics. We, we kind of knit our noetic structures together a little bit more coherently and, and um, uh, comprehensively. And it's our duty to obviously be able to witness to every type of unbeliever from the least to the most inquisitive. Um, the second group is believers. And of course, we know this. We cite statistics all the time with our young people who go off to college and promptly abandon the faith. Um, and we all know men and women who have abandoned the faith for intellectual reasons or maybe emotional reasons masquerading as intellectual ones, but still. Um, but who will help them with their, to reconcile difficulties in their own minds, if not for us, the church? And if you object to studying apologetics on the basis of not knowing, uh, personally not knowing unbelievers with deep questions, I'm not sure that I believe you, and I doubly don't believe you if you make the same claim about brothers and sisters in the Lord. And in fact, just looking out over the room, I can give you dozens of examples of people with profound intellectual uh, questions about the faith, about the scriptures, about the nature of God, philosophy, theology, um, and that sometimes those, those questions turn into doubts, and those doubts turn into difficult periods of their lives. And so um, our zeal to win converts, then, should be matched by our zeal to fortify believers, and I, I think we would all agree with that. The third group is our children. Um, in the, so the days of counting on Western institutions and our culture to address tough questions from kids is, is over. It's squarely on us now. I think we all know that. 
The residue of Christianity has been washed away from our society or has faded away, however you want to interpret it, and we can't any longer coast as parents in what Francis Schaeffer has called a post-Christian era. Even if we as adults ourselves don't need thoroughgoing apologetics to satisfy our own curiosity, our children absolutely do and will. Um, I think yesterday uh, I had a question, an unprompted, unscripted question from William that made me dig as deep as I could possibly dig into the recesses of my mind to help him come up with a, an answer that made sense to him for a deep apologetic question. Um, and so, the, obviously, you parents know it happens all the time. These questions happen all the time. Um, kids, on the whole, uh, view Google search results as more authoritative and accurate than answers from their parents. And can we blame them if we've been derelict for so long? So protecting our sons and daughters intellectually is just as important as protecting them physically and emotionally, right? Protecting them intellectually is just as important as owning a firearm to or being trained to protect them physically. The fourth and final group is you. Um, it's not really a group, but uh, apologetics isn't merely for unbelievers, brothers and sisters in Christ, or even our children. It's for you personally and for me. All of us have questions regarding our faith, even if those questions vary in depth and frequency, area of concern, so forth and so on. Um, as we've mentioned over the years, we're all vessels of varying capacities, um, and, but it's our duty to be filled to the measure that we can be filled. Denny has talked about this in the past. We must not feign or fake being pints when we're quarts, and we must not lie to ourselves about being quarts when we're gallons. Again, learn, study, um, and think to the degree that you're able to without any sort of false humility to the contrary. So one last note before we get into the moral argument, uh, a piece of warrant for justified Christian faith that we're not addressing in this series, but if you've read Craig's books, you know he spends a fair bit of time on, um, because it's, it's a very important point, is the self-authenticating witness of the Holy Spirit. Um, when we talk about reasons to believe that Christianity is true, um, the Holy Spirit testifying inwardly to each believer may be the most compelling of all. This personal reassurance and security that defeats all sorts of doubts throughout the, the life of the believer um, may not have any outward or much outward apologetic value for other people, but it nonetheless can be the primary reason that a believer holds fast to God and substantiates his or her faith in God. The criticism that's often leveled against Mormons proselytizing with their burning bosoms or any other argument from religious experience um, may come to mind here. However, this critique comes from um, when internal experience is cast outward and used to try and persuade others of the truth of a faith. So um, as we all know, uh, such unknowable idiosyncratic experience uh, is hardly relatable or compelling. And it, might, it might not be, uh, or it, it might not be in most cases. Sometimes it may be. Uh, but we must say at the same time, if the God of Christianity is true, then there is a real objective witness of the Holy Spirit to individual believers. Uh, and and, and that's, there is a true uh, objective witness of the Holy Spirit, and that's a real genuine thing. Um, should we reject this reality just because other religions have their own brand of this sort of thing? I don't think that that follows at all. Uh, the private testimony of the Holy Spirit can be a colossal defeater of objections 
uh, to Christianity, and it may properly substantiate a believer's trust in Christianity's truth. So think for a moment about uh, houses that you've seen on, on the beach, right? These are typically in, in coastal areas where uh, it wouldn't be prudent to maybe pour a, a, a foundation like we see around here. Um, so I would liken the foundation of each believer's faith in God to houses like this. Each person's respective commitment to God is undergirded by pillars of various uh, size and composition and so forth, material, perhaps an integral pillar of your house of faith, so to speak, um, is the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps another few pillars are arguments for God's existence. Maybe still others are scriptural passages or religious experience or the insufficiency of competing worldviews um, or the testimony of trustworthy people in your life or whatever. Whatever the composition of each person's foundation, the goal for all of us should be to buttress, reinforce, and add additional stilts to decrease the possibility of the house being destroyed. None of us is immune to the dangers of living in a fallen world, so it's incumbent upon everyone to be diligent in attending um, to the health of his or her foundation. It is the Christian who claims to have no need of apologetics, whose house may be eventually swept away by even a mild ocean swell. So with that picture in mind, let's see if we can add another stilt to your house uh, of faith in the form of the moral argument for God's existence. So this comes from chapter six of uh, William Lane Craig's book, uh, On Guard, and uh, which is a kind of lay version of reasonable faith, which is a lay version of just a giant pyramid of books that Craig has. But um, the particular argument is from a, title, or a chapter entitled, Can We Be Good Without God? Which I think is a little... Uh, is a little poorly named, but whatever. Uh, here's the formulation of the argument. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, that's premise two, therefore God exists. As with previous arguments that we've studied, um, if, premise, if premises one and two are true, and in the case of other arguments, if, if the premises are true, and, those, and it's a valid syllogism, then the conclusion has to follow. It doesn't matter if we like it or not. It doesn't matter if unbelievers like it or not. It has to follow necessarily. Um, there's no escaping it. We know this argument um, and syllogism is valid by the rule of inference in logic called modus tollens, and here is that rule. Modus tollens is just Latin, um, and this, this is sometimes referred to as denying the consequence. You have the antecedent, which is P, the consequent, which is Q, you deny Q, you get, therefore, not P. So that little tilde in logic is not, uh, means not or a negate, the negation of. Um, and so this might be a little hard to pin down in your mind, so let's give a couple examples. Here's an example. If I downloaded TikTok onto my phone, P, the Chinese government would be spying on me, Q. Chinese government is not spying on me, not Q. Therefore, I did not download TikTok onto my phone. Um, not P. Next example, if Guy Platter, premise one, wants to increase his street cred, he won't wear cardigans this fall. <laughs> That's Q. Guy Platter is 100% wearing cardigans this fall, most likely every day. That's not Q. Therefore, Guy Platter doesn't want to increase his street cred. So, um, we know that this formulation of the moral argument is valid. It's airtight in its structure. It's, it's 
its conclusion is inescapable from its premises, but is it sound as well? Are the premises more likely true than false? So let's start with premise two of the argument, which is that objective morals and values, uh, objective moral values and duties do exist. So let's define our terms here. Objective, true or, or real independent of people's opinions. Moral values, the goodness or badness of a particular state of affairs, thing or action, something's worth. Moral duties, the rightness or wrongness of particular conduct, whether or not said conduct is obligatory. So let's be clear about where this premise is focusing. Where is premise two honing in on? Um, the area of our concern today is, and I don't, don't glaze over when I say this, but the concern is moral ontology, not moral epistemology. If you've read Craig, he goes to great pains to make the distinction between these two areas of concern. Um, ontology is a branch of philosophy that deals with the real and objective, whereas epistemology deals with how we know things. So here's what Craig says about all that. I'm convinced that keeping the distinction between moral epistemology and ontology is clear, uh, and th keeping that clear is the most important task in defending this type of argument for God's existence. A proponent of the argument will argue quite readily and even insist that we do not need to know or even believe that God exists in order to discern objective moral values or to recognize moral duties in our world. Affirming the ontological uh, foundations of objective moral values and duties, and God similarly says nothing about how we come to know those values and duties. Okay, so that's, that's the key part. Uh, saying that there are objective moral values and duties says nothing about how we come to know them. That's the difference between moral ontology versus epistemology. What is real versus how we know what is real. Okay, so that's, we're, we're arguing for the first, not arguing about the second with this uh, particular argument for God's existence. Um, the theist can be genuinely open to whatever epistemological theories his secular counterpart proposes for how we come to know objective values and duties. So regarding the terms we mentioned, objective, moral values, moral duties, you'll notice that the, dis this the distinction that Craig makes between moral values and duties, and that might seem like re redundant or a distinction without a difference, uh, but it's important because the value of a particular thing or a proposition is not the same thing as it being incumbent upon us to do that thing uh, or be that thing. So, for instance, it's a good and virtuous action to become a paramedic, right? We have one or two in the room and involve oneself in saving people's lives. But it is not, therefore, obligatory for all of us to become paramedics. Do you get that? It's a good thing to become a paramedic. We, don't, we are not compelled to become one ourselves, if that makes sense. Our duties are given to us in one form or another by God, and more on that when we discuss the first premise, and are different than the moral values themselves, which flow from and are grounded in God's nature. So we have our key terms for premise two, but is it more likely true than false? Let's look at our reasons for thinking so, as well as some objections. So first, it's really difficult to find anyone in the Western world who disputes that objective morals and moral values and duties exist. I mean, you might find some people that pay lip service to it and say that um, they're not objective, they're subjective moral values and duties, but of course, uh, no one lives like that, right? This is the, the classic, if they start spouting this nonsense, take their wallet and leave sort of thing. Uh, the reason why it's so difficult to find anyone who takes umbrage with the existence of objective moral values and duties uh, is that right and wrong, good and bad, are foundational 
ex existential first principles for human beings. It's like our, our starting point. We can't almost help but, uh, but start with these ideas um, or these things. It, um, it's almost as if we can't help but think and behave as if moral things are real things, uh, as if they're part of the furniture of the universe, so to speak. These first principles, which we might call properly basic beliefs, maybe you've heard Alvin Plantinga or William Lane Craig talk about those, are held by everyone whether or not he or she admits it. Have you ever been an unwilling participant in the why game with your children or any children? Um, and this might help illustrate the point of what we mean when we say a properly basic belief. Um, which for our purposes may be defined as the starting point for all other contingent beliefs. Uh, in other words, an assumption which you cannot reason to, but from which you must start cobbling together your system of beliefs, right? Your, your starting point that you can't reduce or you can't reason down below. So if you think about the why game with your children, the adult says, clean your room. Child says, why? Because I told you to. Why? Because it's messy and I'm in charge of you. Why? Because you chose disorder and chaos and because God has structured the family hierarchy this way. Why? Because you're sinful and God's reasons are his own. Why? Because you and Adam freely chose evil over good and I'm not in a position to question the chain of authority handed down by God. And you just keep going and going and going <laughs> until you get to first principles, right? You, you get to... Um, things like the objectivity of, object, of moral values and duties. Uh, but other um, properly basic beliefs might be some, something like uh, the reality of the external world, right? The existence of other minds or people. We, we call people who don't think that other minds exist solipsists, and we make fun of them because if you think that you're the only mind, the only being on earth, that's, it, that's, it's wild. Anyway, the general reliability of our senses, right? This is a basic per first principle that we all, uh, we all have. The actuality of the past, if you, if you really thought that there was no reality of the past and you just, a, a brain planted here with, with um, uh, you know, someone had manufactured or something had manufactured ideas of the past without the past actually having taken place, um, another thing that would you would be like that person's crazy and rightfully so so um, so these are all properly basic beliefs the spider web and interconnectedness of all other beliefs we hold are predicated upon these sort of foundational principles this is not an exhaustive list but and th there are others Every human speaks and acts in moral ways. To deny that such categories aren't grounded in objective reality would be akin to being someone like a solipsist, like we talked about before. It doesn't think that there are any other actual minds, which is equally untenable. Um, just as we would eschew a debate with someone who denies the reality of past events, because like, why bother? Why bother debating with somebody who doesn't think that the past just happened? I mean, eventually your whole conversation will be in the past and it will be illusory, so why even bother talking about it? Uh, there's no hope for meaningfully conversing with someone who thinks that moral reality um, isn't, in some sense, a properly basic belief. And as Craig notes, um, there's no more reason to distrust our moral experience than the experience of our five senses. Um, so we all know deep down that humans are moral creatures and that our nature is grounded in something intransient. We all apprehend that the Holocaust was evil, that torturing children for fun is reprehensible, and that self-sacrifice for the sake of another is virtuous. The man who denies that such propositions are objectively true should be regarded as untethered from the real world. 
No person can avoid acting as if at least some moral propositions are objectively true, even if there's broad disagreement on what exactly those principles and moral laws might be. Recall in the moral argument, however, that we're not really deciding and adjudicating on which worldview is best or true. We're not saying that the God of that this argument proves the God of Islam or of Judaism or of Christianity or whatever. Um, only that some objective morals and values, uh, values and duties do in fact exist. That's all premise two is claiming. Lastly, regarding this premise, uh, do we have any reason to distrust our moral intuitions and proclivities? Perhaps the atheist might say that we only think in moral categories because evolution has deemed it advantageous for our survival. This objection, and you'll hear it a lot if you use this argument and talk with people, uh, unfortunately commits what we call the genetic fallacy. It confuses how we might come to believe a proposition with the truth of that proposition itself. Um, and when you, when you run into this yourself and you're accused of uh, your, your argument is disregarded on the basis of how you came to hold it, uh, it's infuriating because that's not the point, right? The point is the truth of the argument itself. So um, if I come to believe that my father's birthday is September 6th uh, because a talking beetle told me that in my last psychedelic mushroom trip, it would do nothing to invalidate the fact that my father's birthday is, in fact, September 6th, right? Similarly, even if macroevolution were to produce in us moral experience and intuition, uh, it says nothing about whether that experience corresponds to reality. But all that is moot, for it presupposes the truth of atheism to start with. Though I don't think it's the case, God could have, if he wanted, through theistic evolution, used biological processes to point us towards a transcendent moral reality. So lastly, naked sociobiological evolution, divorced from God, so the opposite of what we just talked about, directs creatures towards survival, not truth. Survival, not truth. If a proposition happens to be true, uh, even, for instance, objectively, there's a lion stalking me in a bush 50 yards away. This is immaterial to me surviving the, the encounter, right? If the end goal is to, is to survive, I may incidentally apprehend something that's true, like the lions in the bush 50 yards away, but all that really matters is my survival. So if I hallucinate and perceive that the rustling bush instead is, is some sort of other threat or a green space alien who wants to abduct me, the survival value is the same. I run away, right? But obviously, I haven't apprehended the truth of what was threatening me if that happens. Uh, for more on this topic, I've always wanted to do a, a, a series, or not a series, but at least a sermon on it. Um, this, this argument uh, is in C.S. Lewis's, I think it's in uh, Miracles, Chapter 3 of Miracles, and then in Alvin Plantinga's Where the Conflict Really Lies and Victor Reppert's book, uh, C.S. Lewis's Dangerous Idea, they just write at length about this particular problem for naturalism, that the deliverances of uh, evolution divorced from a, a directing deity uh, produce in us survivability instincts and do not, and do not deliver us truth. Um, so anyway, so that, that's another topic for another time. So uh, on to premise one. Finished with premise two, here's premise one. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Um, first, uh, we need to say what this premise does not say, as we did with premise two. Uh, first, it does not contend that unbelievers can't behave in proper, upright ways. This is 
if you, if you make this argument and you give this premise to most people, especially those with whom you don't share any particular worldview commitments, this is the number one objection that you're going to get, not every time, but most times. It's that you are saying, or accusing you of saying that uh, believers lead more upright and moral lives than unbelievers, or that unbelievers can't do moral things. Not at all what the, what the argument is saying, and not at all what this premise is arguing. So uh, Alistair McGrath, handsomely named gentleman, says, the moral argument is not denying that atheists have moral values, it's asking how these values are justified. Um, the number of times premise number one of the moral argument has been misconstrued um, to mean that Christians always behave better than atheists in general is, is like sand on the seashore. It's the least re sophisticated response, but it's important that we understand that it will come up and be able to deal with it. The question is not who behaves better, atheists or Christians. Rather, given that objective moral values and duties really exist, how are they to be substantiated? How are they to be justified? How are they to be grounded? What gives them their oughtness, so to speak? If they have any authority or force behind them such that we should recognize and obey them, where does this impetus come from? I had an ethics professor in under, undergrad who, um, w when I talked with him about this, he proposed uh, moral Platonism, which at the time was new to me. It's since become very familiar. He proposed this as a workaround to this first premise. Namely, he granted premise two that objective moral values and duties do exist, but he said that concepts like justice or mercy or love or equity or patience uh, just exist by themselves and do not need any moral authority like God to persuade us to adopt them. They just sort of like free float in the ether, uh, much like numbers or propositions. They're just out there somewhere. Uh, waiting for us to just like grab them out of the air, pluck them out of the air, uh, and for us to build our lives around them or obey them. It should be apparent what the problems with moral Platonism are pretty quickly. First, isn't it just arbitrary to pick out love and justice out of an endless array or cadre of moral values and duties? Why not be like, ooh, there's gluttony, or oh, there's rapaciousness, or like just pick out different ones instead. There's no reason to pick out love and mercy over uh, justice or, uh, injustice and inequity. There's no incumbency upon us to pick one over the other, so we can have no complaints if Dave Stevens chooses murder over mercy when deciding on how to respond to me coming onto his property. So, so second, moral Platonism is just, it's not, it's not really intelligible. What does it mean to say that a concept like love just exists devoid of any moral agent or imperative? What does that mean? It doesn't, that's not, those aren't categories that we have. We can make sense of describing our friend as a loyal friend, right? But what does it mean to just say that loyalty is free floating out in the ether? It's stupid. It's a re it, it, how can it be a real thing apart from somebody to exercise it or em embody it? Third and finally, there's no moral consequence for choosing hatred or racism over charity or long-suffering. There's no, there's no consequence for it. Since there's no moral imperative attendant to those moral com concepts, there's nothing compelling us to adopt them or obey them. A moral law lacks efficacy and immediacy without a moral lawgiver. So next, if objective morals and uh, moral values and duties are to be grounded apart from God, what are the other candidates? Like, what, what, else, could it, what else could ground such objective uh, things? 
For ideas such as love to be morally upright for all eternity, which we all intuit is, is true, uh, nothing seems to fit the bill aside from a timeless, omnibenevolent, omnipresent personal being, much like the one we discussed in the Kalam cosmological argument. Some may construe things like numbers or propositions, sets, and so forth as a way to avoid this sort of godlike being that we're, we're kind of describing here, but that really won't work. M much like with moral Platonism, even if objective moral values and duties could be extrapolated from numbers or propositions, sets, and so forth, uh, which they can't, we would have no reason to align our behavior with any of that. So to summarize uh, here, Richard Taylor, uh, ethicist Richard Taylor says, the concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. The words remain, but their meaning is gone. So I said all that to say what he said in two sentences. So as with premise two, uh, what, we should, what should we do with sociobiological objections, um, evolutionary objections to premise one? Namely, can we not ground objective moral values and duties as the end result of billions of years of evolutionary history um, instead of in God? A couple of problems jump out here. First, our particular evolutionary tale could have wound up very, very differently, right? If naturalism is true, then rewinding the history of the world and starting afresh would likely result in wildly different ethical obligations and taboos being handed down from the previous generation. Thus, there's nothing at all objective or special or timelessly binding about the moral deliverances of evolution, divorced from God, of course. Second, to think that human conventions and conduct are in any way objective for our reality under naturalism would be what we call speciest. Okay, what's speciesism? Just the belief that your species is, is you, you value your species and treat your species better than all the, all the rest of the created order. That is, for the atheist, the moral activity of chickens ju has just as much validity as that of homo sapiens. And to impose our version of right and wrong on the rest of the natural order uh, is just like a, a might makes right scenario. In other words, there's nothing objective or binding about our moral recognition, just a will to power sort of thing. As an aside, um, theists and atheists alike are human exceptionalists when it comes to morality, like we're, we all are, we all behave as human exceptionalists, like that humans should get to, to, that we're the only moral creatures and that our moral values supervene on the rest of the created order. There's nothing wrong with that. As Taylor points out regarding the animal kingdom's behavior, he says a hawk that seizes a fish from the sea kills it, but he does not murder it. And another hawk that seizes the fish from the talons of the first takes it, but does not steal it, for none of these things is forbidden. There's something special about interpersonal conduct between humans that does not apply to the rest of nature, and, uh, and the regulation of that conduct, uh, our ethical duties and obligations, is best grounded in God's existence. So lastly, for premise one, getting close to the end here, um, we have the Euthyphro Dilemma. We've talked about this before, um, and I realize now that that red is not the best thing to, to have, the best color to use, but sorry. Um, so the Euthyphro Dilemma uh, is, again, we've addressed it before. We'll touch on it briefly now, but not spend a lot of time on it. Um, and so many of you are familiar with it, um, and it's supposed to, 
Uh, it's raised often as an objection from one of Plato's dialogues. He has a, has a character named Euthyphro who proposes the, the um, following dilemma. First, is an action or thing good because God wills it? Or the second horn of the dilemma, or does God will something because it is good? So if you choose the former option, if you choose number one, that a thing or an action is good because God wills it, then you run into the issue of God willing things that you don't like or that we all know are objectively evil, like genocide or incest or parsimony. Uh, God's power and decree is thus the sole source of goodness, which obviously doesn't seem right. Um, alternatively, if you choose the second option, the latter option, that God wills an action or thing because it is uh, because it is good, then the goodness is grounded wholly outside of God. Uh, he is just on hand to morally recognize and ratify uh, moral tenets that already exist. So the solution to this classic dilemma is to recognize that it's a false one. Uh, there are not two options from which to choose. Indeed, we, we may propose a third possibility, that God wills something uh, because he is good, because he defines the very concept of goodness, that all value, moral value and decrees stem from his very nature, from his very essence. Thus, the good is not capriciously assigned by God, nor is it simply recognized by him as something outside of himself. Moral uprightness and duty flow from his very being, from his very nature, uh, and inform his creatures on what is good and right conduct. Thus, we have plenty of reasons to think that the only proper foundation for objective moral values and duties is God. No other candidate can withstand the load that moral ontology and our collective intuition bring to bear upon it. Uh, it is safe to say that premise one is more plausibly true than not. To wrap up here, it must be said that the, the Christian Trinitarian conception of God can make sense of many moral, uh, objective moral values and duties uh, that other worldviews cannot and that other conceptions of God cannot. Even if the moral argument lets us conclude that a minimal conception of God exists, only the God of the Bible seems to take us the rest of the way to making sense of what we know deep down. For if God were a solitude, as Jews or Muslims contend, what would it mean to say that he was loving prior to his creative decrees? What would it connote to say that he's sacrificial or benevolent or patient, sans creation? These virtues are intrinsically relational virtues, um, and they are hard to square with a monolithic, non-Trinitarian conception of God. Um, there are certainly obligations that God discharges to us and that are contingent for humanity, but there must be part of God's nature which those obligations are derived from uh, that was present before he, before he created everything. It is difficult to see how that key part of God's character would be present outside of a Trinitarian framework. So here's the argument one last time. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. Jay Budzhashevsky, um, someone we don't often reference here, but is, but is excellent um, in his work, What We Can't Not Know, uh, great, a great title for a book. He says, clear vision of the moral law is crushing. Why is that? Because the first thing an honest man sees with his clear vision is a debt which exceeds anything he can pay. 
Apart from an assurance that the debt can somehow be forgiven, such honesty is too much for us. It kills. Therefore, we look away, unable to accept the truth about ourselves. The premises of the moral argument are so often disputed and argued against, not because that they're outlandish or foreign, but because they're so obviously true. As soon as someone hears them, he knows exactly what the implications are. Humans have a great capacity to dull their moral sensibilities, but the image of God imprinted upon each one of us and the witness of the Holy Spirit cannot be ignored forever. As Paul writes in Romans, we all grasp the moral law written upon our hearts, even if we choose to disobey it. So the moral argument is modest in its conclusion, but cataclysmic in its implications. And everyone who objects to it, or most people who object to it, know that. Most people understand this, yet do not want to adjust their lives or behavior to align with its deliverances. Nevertheless, the argument is valid, sound, and a steadfast pillar upon which to build an unbeliever's house of faith, or at least begin to do so. For the Christian as well, it is a further buttress against the intellectual doubts that can so easily overcome our commitment to God. Yeah, thank you, Nate. I always like, are these your van keys? All right. don't, don't forget they're up here. Um, I, I love <clears throat> listening to Nate. These are conversations, uh, related to conversations he and I have had many times about some of the uh, writers we've both read from and the insights. And, you know, like the stuff that Nate covered could lead into eight different sermons. I'm sure, you know, some of those are a lot of teasers in there that, are, that would be great, um, certainly to follow up on if we ever have the chance to do so. Uh, just a couple comments before closing. Um, I, th I think what, if I remember correctly, because it's been a, a few months since I've read the chapter, what I think Craig was trying to pull off when he chose that title was the that can we be good without God is the common complaint. And if you get off track, as Nate addressed, too quickly, a confusing ontology with epistemology. And if somebody says, can we be good without God? and you get a little too zealous about Christianity and say, no, you can't be good without God, you probably have lost your audience already and can say, sure, you can do good things. That's not really the right question. Obviously, the question becomes, where do those uh, good things and, and the need to do them, or even to declare them good, what does that even mean without God, and, and which kind of gets into the, the two parts of that argument. So it, it's a good and a bad title because the, the title points out part of the thing we need to be aware of that somebody might mean something completely different than what we probably mean by that. Um, Nate also addressed a, a, a very common thing I've seen come up with some of my students, which is trying to appeal to evolution and how these moral decrees come along. But of course, it is difficult, if not impossible, to call those things objectively true. They become preferences. Um, since, again, the goal of evolution is our survival. And then to try to put this nuance on it that, that belongs in a different category is fascinating and, and seems to me untenable as well. And one other comment I think that's interesting because, uh, of course, the abortion debate has taken center stage um, due to the court ruling and, and it's great 
in the sense that uh, anytime you have a debate with somebody, they're appealing to what they think is good and the higher good, and that is, in, in most cases, women's rights. And of course, people who are opposed to abortion want to uh, support the life of the child, and, and so we're all talking about what's good. And so it, this stuff all relates, any debate we really have relates back to this idea of the moral argument, and if they believe that's an objective thing, then we, ha we have a, a leg to stand on and a, and a place to start a discussion with them, which would be great. So instead of a reading, I'm going to have you stand and I will pray and dismiss you. Heavenly Father, as we sang about this morning, you are our solid rock and this includes uh, the moral grounding you provide us with that is necessary for us to even survive as a civilization. Uh, let alone to be kind to each other, uh, raise families, and enjoy uh, a morning like this. May we um, consider the words that uh, Nate shared with us and the different scripture passages that are in our minds at the moment that we would not forget them. We would allow them to change us. And um, even this morning as we have an opportunity to spend time and dwell here um, with our brothers and sisters, that we would take advantage of that, uh, further those relationships, challenge each other, um, and build each other up. Thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.